at uh, John Culley's Bookstore in San Diego, but you can go to our website, and that is simply sdgbooks.com, and you can order right from the website. Uh, I don't know how the prices compare at all. Uh, we discount the books 15% and ship them for free. Uh, if that's beneficial to you, fine. We also have a, a uh, email newsletter you can sign up for where we rotate uh, different products, books, tapes, and things like that every month at uh, special discounts uh, and all kinds of things. So if that interests you, again, it is SDG, like Soli Deo Gloria, sdgbooks.com. Well, tonight we want to talk about the Puritans and family worship. I doubt that there are two things. It may not be true of this group, but I doubt that there are two things that have more gone by the way with modern Christian families than one, catechizing their children, and two, having times of family worship. Now again, the Puritans saw the family as a little church. As soon as there was a family unit, God had a church. Adam was the pastor, and Eve and the children were his flock. And part of Adam's role as the head of that family, and at that time of the whole human race, was to instruct them in the things of the Lord. And so that duty fell to every head of every human household. Now one scriptural impetus for this was 1 Timothy 5.8. It says this, if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially those of his own house, he is denied the faith and is worse than an infidel or an unbeliever. And here, the Apostle Paul makes the omission of that duty of spiritual provision to be utterly inconsistent with Christianity. That is not only a mandate for a man to be the physical provider for his house, but also the spiritual provider of his house. And Paul seems to imply in that verse that even unbelievers wouldn't be guilty of such a crime. Samuel Davies, who succeeded Jonathan Edwards at Princeton, there is a, uh, there's a heart-wrenching story right there. That, um, I have spent a lot of time at Yale going through the unpublished manuscripts of Jonathan Edwards, holding the same manuscript in my hand that he held in his hand when he preached it. And uh, If you ever thought you'd seen chicken scratching, you ain't seen nothing yet. He could get an entire hour sermon on a few pieces of paper that were nothing more than the size of large post-it notes. And then he would sew them together, and because paper was at a premium in those days, he would often write sermons in different colored ink between the lines of other sermons and such things as that. And that's why whenever he went out, he took little scraps of paper wherever he could find it. He'd write a thought and he'd stick it to himself. And then he'd come home and he'd look like you know, a bag lady or something like that. He had paper nailed to him all over the place. But uh, Edwards had been fired from his church in Northampton after 27 years of public ministry. And then, in fact, it's quite a story that he offered to preach for free and the church hated him so much they decided if they couldn't get anybody to fill the pulpit, rather than have free Jonathan Edwards, they wouldn't meet. And so his daughters were taking in clothing to mend and darning socks to try to make ends meet. Well, then he took 
a position out in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, pastoring a group of Indians. And then his son-in-law, Aaron Burr Sr., who was the president of the College of New Jersey, now Princeton College, died. And so the board nominated Edwards, and it was unanimous. And Edwards didn't want to leave Stockbridge. This is where he wrote his classic treatise, The Freedom of the Will, The Doctrine of Original Sin. And I've seen the desk that he wrote it on. He devised it himself. It was an octagonal desk, so he could have paper on one angle, the Bible on another one, and reference works, and he would just spin them as he sat there. And uh, he was a genius in more ways than one. But he went to Princeton, and there was a, a smallpox plague going around. And so the local doctor from Philadelphia convinced Edwards he ought to take the vaccination, and Edwards caught smallpox from the vaccination and died six weeks later at the age of 55, which is my age, and that's a little scary. But can you imagine? You know, we all have questions we're going to ask God when we see him, right? And why did you take him that early, just when he was starting to crank it out? But you know, there are... 1,100 of his sermons at Yale, most of them have never been published. In the two-volume Banner of Truth edition of the works of Jonathan Edwards, and that comprises about 9% of the works of Jonathan Edwards, there are only 66 sermons. And so there are 1,100 sermons that he left in manuscript form. When he died, someone went through all of his papers and valued it at $10. I'd have given him 20 for it. I don't know what the, the problem was. And uh, Yale has been publishing the works of Edwards since 1953. They will stop at volume 27, and that will be half the material. So you can see what this guy could have done with a Macintosh laptop if such a thing had been invented. Well, that hasn't got anything to do with family worship, but when Edwards died, Samuel Davies took his place. He wrote this, The heads of families are obliged not only to exercise their authority, but also to provide a competency of the necessities of life, and to do so is but to provide for themselves. Now, another obvious verse advocating family worship, and uh, I don't know if it's listed on your recommended reading list at the back of your little notebook, but there is a book by James W. Alexander called Thoughts on Family Worship. And that is simply an encouragement to families to worship together. We will be coming out with a book uh, probably in late 2005 by the Puritan George Hammond that gives the biblical case for family worship. Old Testament, New Testament, and the teachings of Christ Himself. But here Joshua says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua is here making a declaration on behalf of the entire household. The great evangelist George Whitfield lamented, It is greatly to be feared that those out of many households who call themselves Christians, there are but few who serve God in their families as they ought. And then there was this, which for the Puritans was the key one, and that is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them 
when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now that was the definitive text to the Puritans for advocating families worshiping together as a little church. The word translated teach here in the Hebrew literally means to whet, and it was a word picture that was taken from sharpening tools, for example, like a file, by drawing it back and forth across the grindstone until it was just right. And that has led to our English translation, teach them diligently. Literally, the idea is keep going over it and over it and over it and over it and over it again. I spent a year studying under the late John Gerstner in the theology of Jonathan Edwards. And when he took me on as a student, he says, we will study his theology in the 66 sermons of Edwards in the two-volume edition of the works. And I said, well, Dr. Gerstner, I've already read all 66 of those. He says, really, you've read all 66? And I said, yes. And then he says, okay, then here's what we'll do. We'll read them again. Because if any of you have ever read Edwards, you know that you don't get it all the first time through or the tenth time through or the fiftieth time through. And so we are to go over these things over and over and over. And again, that is the whole idea behind catechizing. It is memorization by repeating something over and over. And will you notice how often this diligent teaching is to take place? When you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now, what time of the day is not comprehended in that time schedule? In other words, talking of the things of God, thinking of the things of God, is to be an all-day, everyday event in a Christian home. And we're not only to talk of them, but that passage tells us to bind them, to hang them, and to write them. Now, the word bind there is used of tying an ornament. The Jews wore two phylacteries, two little leather pouches. The more important of these was tied around the head so that the first little pouch hung right between the eyes. And that was to remind them of the law of God. It was to be consciously before their eyes. Just like uh, some of you have seen perhaps portraits of the old Puritan preachers who have these two little bands coming out of their collar. And those were called Geneva bands or preaching bands. And it was a reminder to the preacher that it was law and gospel. And that's what those stood for. Because as Luther said, we ought never to preach the law without the gospel. And we ought never to preach the gospel without the law. And so those were a reminder to the preachers. Well, just like this little leather pouch was a reminder to the Jew of the law of God that he was to have it always in his sight. And the other little pouch was tied to the inside portion of the left arm so that when he folded his hands in prayer, it sat right on top of his heart. Very, very significant. And so it wasn't only an issue of the mind and the memory, but it was to go through the mind and the memory to the heart. The words which I command you today you shall write on your heart. 
the purpose of ongoing conversation about God's law and the doctrine that comes from it was to affect the heart. It was to be memorized so that it might affect the heart. And then he says this in that passage, it was not only something to be inside the house, but it was to be written on the outside of the house, on the doorposts, and then on the gate. And the idea here was that a Christian household was to be known throughout the community by the godly precepts that governed it. This is the question I asked you last night. What is distinctly Christian about your home, about your family? What kind of a witness do you have, not only by the things that you say, but by the way your house is kept? For example, it's a terrible testimony if a Christian has a messy yard, an unkempt yard. It's a terrible testimony if our kids are the ones running around knocking over trash cans in the neighborhood. You see, we are to be the example. We're to be the witnesses. We're not to be the mission field. And what does it say about us when our families and our homes and our lives are no different than anyone else's other than the words that come out of our mouths? Well, this was the extent to which the instruction of the house was to go. And it wasn't to go to children specifically and only, but to all who fit the description of a, quote, inferior in the house to the, quote, superior head of the house. So the father, as physical head of the house, was also spiritual head of the house, and he was the head of all who lived in it. That's why in the Old Testament, when it talks about keeping the Sabbath, it wasn't only your children and your wife in your house that were to keep the Sabbath, but it was anyone who worked for you as well as your animals. Now, I'm not sure of the meaning of that because I grew up on a dairy farm and I never ever remember one of those cows taking Sunday off. So I'm not exactly sure of the meaning of that in Scripture where it says your donkeys and your cattle are not to work on Sunday. Of course, I don't ever remember the cow working anyway. It just stood there while I did all the work. And then it swatted me in the face with its tail just to make it more annoying. God commended Abraham in Genesis 18 for being faithful in this practice. God says of him, I know that he will command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Now the Puritans saw the father as a prophet to instruct his family, as a priest to pray for his family, and as a king, to govern, direct, and provide for his family. And in that role, then, Dad was imitating Christ, who had the same roles to his people of a prophet, priest, and king. So the first argument in favor of family worship for the Puritans was that God had commanded it. Now, that's reason enough. I mentioned to you this morning that I had been at that CMA church in West Virginia And you know that this always happens when you say, we were talking a little bit about the providence of God and the decrees of God, and I mentioned to them that God decrees everything that comes to pass, and that there's nothing that comes to pass that God has not ordained to be so. And you know the inevitable question that came to me afterwards, if God has decreed everything that comes to pass, what's the rest of it? Why pray? Why preach? 
Why do this? Why do that? If God has already determined what He's going to do. And I said, why isn't it enough that God has commanded it? That's the first reason to do anything, because God has commanded it. Whether or not you understand how those two work together is irrelevant. It's just like that bumper sticker. I, I'm, I'm trusting God's providence that none of you have it on your cars. I'm trusting God that after tonight, none of you will ever utter it again. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And you realize that one-third of that formula is irrelevant to any meaningful discussion. Whether or not you believe it means nothing. If God said it, that settles it, and there is nothing else to be said about it. Why do we do things? Because God said so. That's reason enough. But there, that was by no means the only argument in favor of family worship. The second reason that the Puritans held to daily times of family worship, if not multiple daily times, and normally it was at the morning meal and at the evening meal, was that family worship was a means that God had ordained. And you know this, that just because God has ordained something, He always ordains means to accomplish that end. Obviously, Christian parents desire the salvation of their souls of their children, and they realize that if God had decreed the salvation of the souls of their children, He had also decreed this end by using means. And the means here was that family worship was one of those means. Now, typically, family worship would include these elements. One, prayer and thanksgiving to God. Second, a discussion of spiritual things between the members of the family. Third, singing of psalms. Most of the Puritans were psalm singers. That was pretty much the order for the day. But it is interesting that so many of the Puritans wrote the hymns that we sing today. I mentioned to you that book that we just came out with, uh, called Worthy is the Lamb, which is over 300 pages of Puritan poetry. These were magnificent poets as well as first-rate theologians. And if you are not doing family worship now and need something to help you get started, you have that wonderful book that uh, my friend there mentioned, the Psalms and Hymns of Isaac Watts. Then there is this book of poetry, religious poetry, called Worthy is the Lamb. There is also a book <clears throat> that we did of four months' worth of daily devotionals taken from the writings of Jonathan Edwards. It's just called Devotions from the Pen of Jonathan Edwards, short little one, two-paragraph things that would be good for a daily type of thing. But they were pretty much exclusive psalm singers. Uh, there just weren't that many hymns to be sung at that point, for one thing. But secondly, also, they took the position, like the Covenanters do today, that if we sing the Word of God, we know at least we're not singing any error. And that's not a bad position to take, although I don't know why they would restrict themselves to the Psalms. Any portion of Scripture that could be rhymed and sung would be a good thing to do. Number four was repetition of the doctrine that had been taught the previous Lord's Day by the minister. And so what was the, what was the doctrine that the pastor taught? Now, it may help a little to understand 
that in a typical Puritan sermon, there were three parts to that sermon, not just three points. Most of the people would have given anything if he'd have held it to three points. I remember a sermon where, as I was flipping through it, I saw this, 76thly, Anyway, there was the opening of the text, putting it in its historical context, and then there was the doctrine that was stated from the text, in other words, doctrine, and it was explicitly stated, God can only love that which is like himself. That's the doctrine. And then the pastor would spend quite an extensive amount of time from Scripture and reason explaining the doctrine, proving the doctrine, and then a full half, third to a half of the sermon was application. And it wasn't like saying, okay, John, here's what you need to do, but he would apply it to various groups within the church. To those of you who are doubting your salvation, let this instruct you. To those of you who have never closed with Christ, that's a wonderful term the Puritans use for we would say accepting Jesus as Savior, they would call it closing with Christ in all of his offices as prophet, priest, and king. That's why there was never any discussion about lordship salvation, because if you didn't accept all of Christ, you didn't get any of Christ. You couldn't accept him by thirds or by halves. And so there was repetition of the doctrine that had been taught the previous Lord's Day. Then fifthly, there was going over the scriptures that the pastor had used to prove it and teach it. One of the things the Puritans insisted on was that the people be noble Bereans, that they go to the Word of God, look at the scripture that had been used to bring home this point, and find out, is that really what the scripture teaches? Then there was fasting on some occasions, and lastly, there was parental instruction. Nicholas Byfield was one of the earliest of the Puritans. He said there were eight topics that were always good and appropriate for family instruction. First of all was the fear of God. <clears throat> we have three books, and I don't mean to make this sound like an infomercial. We have three books that what we've done is we've put the text of the book and then an outline of the book and then a study guide in the book so that people individually or in groups or as families can study this book together. One of them was by John Bunyan, and it's his book on the fear of God. Uh, I think another one is John Flavel's book, Keeping the Heart, on Proverbs 4.23. And then the third one is Thomas Boston's book, subtitled The Sovereignty and Wisdom of God in the Afflictions of Men. And the title of the book is The Crook and the Lot. And we brought it out right after September 11, 2001, uh, just because... We heard so much tripe coming out of people that God had nothing to do with this that we thought somebody better tell them the truth. That if God is not involved in every single aspect of human life and existence, that's more scary than tourists getting on planes. I mean, tourists, terrorists getting on planes. So the first one for family instruction was the fear of God. Second was the meaning of the sacraments. One of the things that Puritans always thought that parents ought to do with their children was to help them understand the meaning of their baptism, that they had been committed by the parents to God when they were baptized. The third was the law of God, which included the love of virtue and the hatred of vice. 
Those two things go together. You cannot love virtue without hating its contrary. And we see that in the law of God. And one of the things the Puritans thought about the law of God was that to them, the law of God was simply nothing more than the character of God in transcript form. For example, when the Ten Commandments tells us that we are not to commit adultery, it is because God is a faithful, covenanting, keeping, covenant-keeping God, and adultery is the antithesis of keeping a covenant and being faithful. And since fidelity is one of God's attributes, we are not to commit adultery because that would be to violate His character. And so using the law of God, they would teach the character of God because they saw the law in, as God's character in a transcript form. Fifthly, the fourth, excuse me, was the consideration of God's judgments. God's judgment and His judgments. They would look at Old Testament illustrations to see how God had punished His people for their ongoing sin. And they were not afraid to talk to children about hell. We did a book some years ago. It's out of print now. It was called A Token for Children. And it was a collection of conversion accounts of young children in London in the 1600s by a Presbyterian pastor named James Janeway. And next to the Bible, it was the most widely read book in England in the 17th century. Well, Cotton Mather here in America liked the book so much, he did a uh, New England version, a token for the children of New England. We put them together into one book. And what was happening was that children would read about other children being converted and their souls were affected, and they began to seek their own salvation. But one of the things they weren't afraid to talk about, James Janeway opened the book this way, Parents, your children are not too young to die, and they are not too young to go to hell. Now, Edwards has about 30 sermons in that 1100 that I mentioned to you. About 30 of those are to young people and to children, and most of them he talks to them about hell. And he's very graphic about it in ways that children will understand and because of that, some in his own day called him a sadist. In fact, as I was talking with one of the men who is working on the uh, Yale edition of the works of Jonathan Edwards, and I was telling him that I would like to publish these sermons to children and young people. I've got five of them transcribed already, and I, and I don't know if uh, the other 30 will ever get done or not, but this man was saying, you know, the way Edwards talks about hell, it's almost psychological abuse. Now, what are you talking about? He says, well, for example, he says, he tells children that if they go to hell, their parents won't be there, and they'll wake up screaming in the dark in the middle of the night, and no one will come to comfort them. He says, that's child abuse. I said, you've got to be joking. I said, these kids saw their brothers and sisters scalped by Indians in front of their eyes. They, they were faced Indian attacks every day in the frontier, and they saw diphtheria and things like that take their relatives and their friends, you think this was going to scare them? And Edwards' response was even more significant. He says, you know, I'm not a sadist because I really believe in hell. If I was a sadist and I believed in hell, I wouldn't tell the kids. We become so psychologically correct in our day that we're afraid to speak the truth about things that really matter. 
Number five in Byfield's list were God's great works on behalf of his people. Number six was how to hope in God. Number seven is the general sense and course of the scriptures. And number eight was the enforcement of the doctrine taught the previous Lord's Day. How are we going to put this to use, kids? Now, what I hope you see in all of this is that family worship was built around time in God's Word. Time in the Word, both reading and discussing the meaning of it, singing psalms, which is time in the Word, discussion of last Sunday's sermon, which is time in the Word, the parents' daily instruction in the Word, which is time in the Word, and then there was prayer, which was the response to the time in the Word. Obviously, the Word of God held a preeminent place in family worship just as it should in our family worship, and just as it should in our public worship. In too many churches, the preaching of the Word of God is an afterthought. We hope we can squeeze it in after all the announcements, after all the singing, after the special music, if there is any, after the special thing for the children. I remember a church near Gettysburg where I was asked to preach They told me they were used to getting out at 5 after 12, and they introduced me at 5 minutes before 12. But they had snuck a lot of other stuff in there. There had been awards for the children for doing this, and there had been special announcements honoring this, and there had been a comedy, I mean a children's sermon snuck in there somewhere. And there had been all kinds of stuff, and they gave five minutes to the preaching of the Word. That's not worship. At least it's not worshiping God. It's worshiping us. I'll repeat that point about prayer again, that if the Puritans believed that their children were not saved, they were not allowed to pray in the sense of petitioning God. Although, I find it very interesting that in his um, narrative of surprising conversions, which I think is an interesting title in its own, Edwards talked about a little four-year-old girl named Phoebe Bartlett who he felt had experienced a genuine conversion at that age in his own town, in his church, in his preaching. As I said last night, the main means of nurturing and instructing in family worship was time in the Word in catechizing. That was the basis for the catechisms. Some of you who homeschool may use the New England primer. Anybody here use that? in your homeschooling. It's not a bad tool. It was uh, used, written in the uh, early part of New England history to teach alphabet and reading and writing and such things as that, all using Bible truth. Uh, Let me think if I can remember one. A is for Adam, in whose fall we fall all. Something like that. Uh, And In fact, on our website, you can have this. We have a section called Free Sermons. And one of those things that you can have is John Cotton's Catechism for Children called Milk for New England Babes Drawn from Scripture Breasts. That's a typical... You can always tell if it's a Puritan thing because the title is longer than most modern sermons. You know, in Edward's book, The Freedom of the Will, that's really just the capsulization of it. The full title goes something like this, An Inquiry into that modern prevailing notion of the freedom of the will 
which is propagated by the Sassanians, the Pelagians, and the Armenians, which tends to liberty of conscience. And then he goes on for about 40 more lines. Say, well, you can't fit that on the spine of a book, so you just call it the freedom of the will. Uh, we normally have a uh, book table at R.C. Sproul's conferences, and uh, he had been speaking about Luther's The Bondage of the Will, and then he mentioned in passing Edward's Freedom of the Will, and so inevitably, as you can imagine, if R.C. mentions a book, everybody wants a copy of it, and so they all came to our table, and I remember one old lady from the South what was that book that Sproul mentioned on the will? And I said, well, he was mentioning the bondage of the will, but he also mentioned Edward's freedom of the will. I don't want no book on free will. No, no, it's not for it. It's against it. Don't try to sell me any book on free will, Sonny. I don't want it. I was mentioning to you uh, J.W. Alexander's book, Thoughts on Family Worship. And uh, we got a call one day at the office where a secretary from Texas called. And I'll do my best caricature of a southern accent here. She says, uh, this is Julie, and I'm calling for Reverend Billy Ray. And he has just read J.W. Alexander's book on family worship, and we'd like to invite him to speak at our family camp. <laughs> and I'm pretty good at snookering people, and so I was waiting for the punchline, you know, and it never came. And I so after a few seconds, I said, well, ma'am, he has been dead for 180 years. And she was quiet for a moment, and then she said, So shall I tell my pastor he will not be available? <laughs> yes, ma'am, that is what you should tell your pastor. He will not be available. But these catechisms and premers were to teach by repetition the most important truths of all, to answer the most important question of all, who is God and what must I do to be saved? I have a book by the English Puritan Thomas Doolittle entitled The Plain Method of Catechizing. And it has so many books on catechizing that uh, almost without number, but it has a very interesting introduction, which is the basis for the book, because it's a letter from members of his congregation demanding that he catechize them as well as preach to them. Let me read it to you. Reverend Sir, we under your pastoral care and charge, having been without one useful part of your ministerial work and an ordinance of God, that is, proper catechizing, so-called, conceive that we have a warrant of divine authority to make our humble application to you that this work of teaching, which you owe us, might be taken up for the benefit of the ignorant among us, young and old, hoping that your preaching will afterwards be more profitable to more people when a good foundation is thereby first laid. And if you are pleased to do this, we will be ready not only to attend upon it, but also, which is due from us to you, to encourage your labors in anything so far as we are capable. What pastor wouldn't give his eye teeth to get a letter like that from a congregation? You owe us more. I think congregations should do with their pastor if he tries to sneak a 30-minute or so sermon in. Is that all you've got to say? Come on, we didn't come here just to leave. Give us the Word. I read in a now defunct 
Christian newsletter, the International Religion News and Report or something, some years ago about a congregation of Indians out in the uh, Dakotas who a uh, pastor came to them and preached for 25 minutes and they almost killed him. They were so upset that he would cheat them out of instruction from the Word of God. And I have a friend in Pittsburgh who fills the pulpit every now and then at a black congregation, and he was telling me the first time he went there, the service started at 9.30, and at quarter to 12 he was introduced. And so he said to the elder, how long do I have to preach? He says, till God stops telling you to talk. We didn't come just to leave, friend. Where's that there were more congregations like that? Who said, listen, sir, we would see Jesus. Show us Christ some more. Open the Word to us some more. So Doolittle, in a letter to his fellow ministers regarding the importance of this work, said to other ministers that catechizing is a more speedy and easy way to cure the ignorance of people than preaching. And he said a catechist can help ignorant persons to know more knowledge in ten months than multitudes who've never learned the first principles of religion can by listening to sermons for 40 years. And so in that book he starts with a prefatory catechism to the catechism. And the first question is this, what is catechizing? The answer is this. Catechizing is a leading ordinance of God, teaching by audible and alternate voice the ignorant, young and old, the first principles of the oracles of God in order to carry them on towards perfection, end quote. Now, you know this is true already that the more you hear something, the more easy it is to remember. And that is why advertisers so often put jingles to their product, even if they're absolutely ludicrous. But you can remember this, at least some of you who are my age are about there, because I could give you a commercial jingle and I know that you could finish it. Dinah Shore, see the USA in, in your Chevrolet. How do you know that? Because you heard it a gazillion times. And we could go on and on and on and on. When appealing to parents to catechize their children, Doolittle gave this as a reason. You brought them into the world as sinners. Now you must do all that lies within you to see they don't leave the world in that damned state. Well, that's a pretty good reason right there. In the letter to the Christian reader that began early editions of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms, you find these words, as we cannot but with grief of soul lament the multitude of errors, blasphemies, and all kinds of profaneness which have in this last age like a mighty deluge overflown this nation. So among various others which have helped to open the floodgates of all these impieties, we esteem the disuse of family instruction one of the greatest. It is an uncomely sight to behold men in years who are babes in knowledge. A most sovereign antidote against all kinds of errors is to be grounded and settled in the faith. Persons unfixed in the true religion are very receptive to a false one, and they who are nothing in spiritual knowledge are easily made anything. 
what a dreadful meeting those parents must have at that great day with their children when all who were under their care shall not only accuse them, but charge their eternal miscarrying upon this score. Robert Bolton was a Puritan in his book, The General Directions for a Comfortable Walking with God, said that no parent would ever want to hear their child say to them at judgment, Alas, that I was ever born of such accursed parents who did not have the grace and love for me to train me in the ways of godliness. Had they done so, I might have lived in the endless joys of heaven, whereas now I must lie in these everlasting flames. Thomas Manton, in his Epistle to the Reader, which prefaces the Westminster Confession of Faith, said this, The general complaint of our day concerns the decay of the power of godliness, and more especially the great corruption of youth. The source of the mischief must be sought, but it is our own negligence in their education. Religion was first hatched in families, and there the devil seeks to crush it. And he warns that ministers and parents should teach young children while they are soft and pliable like wax and are capable of having the knowledge and the fear of God impressed upon them. And he rightly shows in almost these exact words that if we do not fill their heads with truth now, someone else will fill it with error later. And it is much harder to dislodge truth than it is to dislodge error. As we mentioned last night, the shorter catechism was originally said to be for the unlearned, the ignorant, and the infantile. So in other words, infants and people with no education should be able to handle the 107 questions in the shorter catechism, and people with education and maturity should be able to do the 196 they had an entirely different mindset about these things than we do. They worshipped at home as families, and they worshipped in the public assemblies as families. The idea of Sunday school or a children's sermon was unknown until the last 150 years. I do find it very interesting, and I think very insightful, that in Puritan New England, typically every eighth Sunday was a sermon for the children. So there would be seven weeks of ongoing exposition of Scripture, and in the eighth week, the parents would come and bring the children, as they always did. The children were there for everything. But they would bring the children, and the parents would pray in the pew while the pastor preached to the children. And we have put 15 of those sermons together in a book, and the title of the book is God's Call to Young People. And the theme, it's evangelistic in nature. But one of the themes that runs through it is this, children, if you're not in a right relationship to your parents, you can't for a moment think you're in a right relationship to God. That's the arena where children can check the sincerity of their conversion if they feel they've had one. And this is why regular family worship was so important, because it was there that the children learned proper decorum in the house of God. Is one of the things I decry when I go out is that I see so much irreverence out of young people or children, so much misbehavior that's allowed and tolerated, and one of the reasons for that is is because they're not learning proper reverence for God's house at home, and so when they get there, they have no reason to think it's any different here. 
But that's one of the reasons that the Puritans referred to it as the sanctuary, because it was set apart for a holy use, and therefore it was to be treated that way. If they've been taught to sit reverently during family worship at home, it's no trauma to have them sit reverently in church. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that Paul relates of Timothy that from his childhood, that word in the Greek is briefos, literally infancy. Timothy, from the time you have been an infant, you have known the Holy Scriptures. And what effect did those Holy Scriptures that he had reading the Word of God to our children? Is it their lack of understanding? But isn't that the Holy Spirit's job to worry about that? And again, when you've got unborns that are able to respond favorably to God, are we going to say that He's unable to reach children at any age? Very interesting to me that in the 17th century, the average age of conversion was between 6 and 11. Today it's between 18 and 26. What's changed? God? No. We've let the experts tell us that they can't understand. But they can understand at their level. Now I admit that a Phoebe Bartlett is rare, but again, notice who was it that carried out that instruction for Timothy? It was his mother and his grandmother. And I dare say that even though women are forbidden to teach in the public assemblies, they are expected to teach in the families. And they will probably have more influence than any of us pastors will on children in the home. William Perkins pointed out that they are even more so there because they are more there than the father is who has to work to provide physically. Can you imagine what it was like and what the treasures in heaven were like, are like, for the mother of a Jonathan Edwards. Or for the mother of Augustine, who prayed for him until he was converted. How about Timothy? What kind of treasures in heaven do his mother and his grandmother have? Because they instructed him and gave him the Holy Scriptures from the time he was an infant. And this, of course, supports Paul's admonition to Titus that women who have husbands and children are to be keepers at home. And how interesting that the reason Paul gives is if they don't, the Word of God is blasphemed. Now that one consideration takes precedence over every other argument you can bring against it. But if we don't stay home with our children, we blaspheme the Word of God. John Dodd said that the reason Timothy became such a useful preacher was because the women in his life fed his soul as well as his body. I'm convinced that the ones that will have the most treasures in heaven are the mothers and the grandmothers who prayed their sons and their daughters into the kingdom, who gave them the Word of God at a very early age. My grandmother never had any formal training. In fact, she was a Nazarene Arminian. She grew up in the Salvation Army playing the trombone, 
the guitar and the mandolin on the San Francisco street corners in the 1900s, early 1900s. And I have that guitar and that mandolin because she kept the sales receipt. And that's why I saved $500 when I sent it back to Gibson because they say if you have the original receipt, we'll fix it for free for the life of the guitar. And I thank God for a grandmother who kept receipts. <clears throat> and when I was in college going through my rebellious years, it was Grandma who sent me $10 out of her tithe for spending money. And I could never bring myself to spend that $10 on beer because that was Grandma's tithe. And I remember when I was so crazy about a girl in love, uh, so about crazy about a girl in college, and I was sure that she was the one. And so I called Grandma and said, Grandma, would you pray for this? Because I knew if Grandma prayed, it was a done deal. Grandma, I'm really in love with this girl. I'd really like to marry her. Will you pray that she falls in love with me? And then Grandma said those words I didn't want to hear. I will pray for God's will. Oh, no. Now I have no chance. Grandma never had anything but a King James Bible and a concordance. But she was just smart enough to know if God said it, I guess he must mean what he says, and I guess we better do it. And she'll have treasures in heaven that I'll only dream about. She instructed us in the Word of God. And I remember that she used to make us sit in church and listen. Grandma had, I'm sure it was inspired by God because it worked so well, she had long thumbnail and a long first fingernail. And since it was in Northern California in the dry heat, we would always wear short sleeve shirts. And if we ever started to act up, Grandma would reach under our sleeve and grab a little piece of skin under there and squeeze it between her thumbnail and her fingernail. And we were sure this was the Spanish Inquisition. And then she would simply say, Listen to the preacher. And we did because we were more afraid of Grandma than we were the fires of hell. We were more afraid of those, the damage those two fingers of hers could inflict on us. But we listened. And what is God's normal means to save people? Faith comes by what? Hearing. Which presupposes listening. And children will never be made ready to come into the corporate worship of God if they first haven't learned how to behave themselves at home. And family worship is perfect for seeing that come to fruition because it makes time spent in worshiping God the norm, not the exception. So I suggest pastors and parents and all of us, we need to recommit ourselves to reestablishing the divine ordinance of family worship in our homes. You know, one of the things, one of the vows we took at our children's baptism, and not only if it's your child, but if you're a member of a Presbyterian church, whether it's the OPC, the PCA, the RPCGA, or whatever, is you took baptismal vows to do all that lies within you to see these children come to faith. And so this is one of the good works that we can be doing is to encourage one another to times of family worship. And if children are up, acting up in the public worship, we need to love them enough to tell them to sit still and listen. 
to behave in God's house. We took a vow to do that when they were baptized. Because if they're not listening, they can't be hearing, and if they can't hear, they can't be saved. And we need to love them enough to do that, even risking somebody else's feeling like we're stepping over our bounds. But we need to remind them, I took a vow before God to do this type of thing. And this will not only revolutionize our families, but it will bring back the kind of worship God wants, reverential and God-centered worship. Now, there are temporal benefits to this aside from the spiritual ones. First of all, this will reestablish Dad as the spiritual leader in his own home. Secondly, it will force Dad to study God's Word more. You want to know how I memorized the Shorter Catechism? By teaching my daughter the Shorter Catechism. I would never have done it if I hadn't had to teach it. And you pastors know that that's where you learn much of what you know is because you have to teach it. And when you've gone over the Shorter Catechism with your children 400 times, you'll know the Shorter Catechism. And that's to your own benefit because you're learning doctrine as well. And the third thing it will do is it will bring the family together as a family unit before God. You know, one of the things our culture is doing is ripping apart our families by making us so busy we hardly ever see each other. How often a week do you actually get to sit down as a family, all of you, at the same table, at the same time, and sit and talk? It's almost a foregone thing. It's just... One parent is there while the other one's rotating kids to soccer practice, band practice, this, that, and the other thing. And I admit that there will be a cost to this. There may be some worldly activities that will have to go by the wayside and we'll have to give up. But you see, God commands this, and the eternal rewards far outweigh whatever we may have to give up in this temporal world. But it doesn't make much sense, does it, to pray for the souls of our children or the souls of our parents if we're children and they're not saved, if we're not doing all that lies within us to see it come to fruition and using the means that God has given. We're going to talk more about that tomorrow night when we talk about what made Christ so indignant. But for now, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I trust that we will see that this ordinance of family worship is a scriptural mandate and that if we have taken baptismal vows with our own children or with those of other children, other families that we have vowed before God to not only be an example, but to do all that we can to see children come to faith and certainly immersing our own children in the Word of God in times of family worship and then making them listen in the public assemblies is one of those means. May we become more committed to Scripture ordinances and being a Scripture family and therefore being pleasing to the Lord who has commanded it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.